This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is the chairman of the House Committee on Natural Resources, Utah 1st District Representative Rob Bishop. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the Corn Farmers Coalition, growing safe, abundant, and affordable food in a sustainable way. Utah Congressman Rob Bishop joins us next here on AgriPulse Open Mic. Innovation, efficiency, and productivity. For America's family farmers, this is a reality born of commitment and necessity. Today, farmers can plant up to 43% of the nation's corn crop, an area bigger than New York State, in a single day, thanks to advances in machinery, management, and technology. Growing safe, abundant, and affordable food in a sustainable way is a great American success story. To learn more, go to www.cornfarmerscoalition.org. Innovation is growing in the cornfields of America. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Our guest this week is Utah 1st District Representative Rob Bishop. As chair of the House Committee on Natural Resources, Bishop is pleased with recent votes to approve needed policy for the nation's forest land and for water, but says much work is left to be accomplished, especially in the time leading up to the congressional August recess. Uh, You have a couple of weeks left here in which there are still appropriations bills that have to be done. Uh, There is one hiccup that if it's overcome, you can see a whole lot of them run very quickly. Um, What just happened, though, is I think the House has passed a series of significant bills in the last couple of weeks. The real action is going to be on the Senate to see how they can get queued up to take them as soon as they come back from their break. And the big issues, obviously, the highway bill that we did, the water bill, the resilient forest bill we did a, a while ago, these are all big things that we have been working with the senators. We think the Senate is ready to receive them. Uh, we need to go forward with that. Finalizing the National Defense Authorization Act is a huge deal. I expect to see all that happening in the next couple of weeks. Let's talk for just a moment about successes and coming off of a, a positive Thursday uh, vote, 245 to 176, policy that would help those in the West that are suffering from such dry weather. Yeah, I'm extremely excited about what we did. This, this has always been referred to as the California Water Bill. It's much bigger than that. Uh, this actually will deal with issues of drought and how to prepare for them and work our way through them for the entire West, actually for the entire nation, but especially in the West where the drought is hitting right now. And it goes back to the simple basic concept, I, a twofold. Number one is if you really want to be prepared for the future, you've got to save what you have. That means dams and reservoirs and storage facilities, and we've got to streamline the ability of having them done, making them bigger, making them making them useful. And the second is you've got to prioritize people and make sure that, you know, we don't necessarily have to change any of our environmental policies, but you have to change some of our practices so that more water can get through these roadblocks and actually get to people where they can use it for agribusiness, where they can use it for their homes. And the construction of these facilities that would help to retain fresh water, a combination of state and federal, is private involved in that, or or how extensive uh, of, of an effort to be able to accomplish uh, the, the intent of this law? Well, actually, I think the bulk of the money will always come from state and federal sources. That's what it has been traditionally. Private can be a, can be a good addition to it. But the real issue is how do we stop the uh, – how do we speed up the process of getting these things permitted, getting dams raised, getting dams constructed, getting reservoirs to be able to catch what is naturally there? We, we, 
no longer can we just say, let's, let's pray for rain, let's do a couple of rain dances and hope the situation goes away. We've got to actually prepare for it, and that means storage and storage capacity. Do you see companion legislation in the Senate? Not companion legislation, but we have talked to senators before we started this process. So that Senator Murkowski, Senator Barrasso, who are key players for the entire West, as well as Senator Feinstein for California. So we, we attempted to put in issues in this particular bill that would be, for which they would be receptive. And that's why I think we have a better than 50-50 chance of actually getting it through the line and onto the president's desk and getting it signed. I would be interested in, in, uh, in asking you to expand on your comment from the press release following the approval of H.R. 2898 to liberate Americans from the prison of outdated water laws and radical environmental regulations. Well, and, uh, yeah, I stand by what I said there, although sometimes you have to kind of take a step back when you're talking to people. But the bottom line is, part of the problem we have, not all of it, but the biggest problem is the fact that there's a lot, lack of rain. But part of the problem is we are wasting the, money, the water we do have, shipping it out to the ocean for some environmental decisions that were made a long time ago that may or may not have been wise at the time. I personally don't think they were wise, but it is the time to move on from that. So we're not going to necessarily change those decisions, but we have to be creative in how we can work around it to make sure the bulk of the water doesn't flow out to the ocean where it's wasted, but it flows down to where the people can actually use it. I wonder if there's not a a comparison that we can draw between the water bill that was approved and the recent bipartisan passage of uh, H.R. 2647, the Resilient Federal Forests Act of 2015. It appears in the commentary around uh, that particular resolution that it offered some common-sense solutions to protecting millions of acres of forest land in the country. The forest bill I'm especially proud of because it is one of those things which we talked to the Forest Service and they are they needed the tools that we were giving them. So there, are, there to me, there are three problems in the forest, National Forest Service on why we have problems in our national forests. And it's not because the Forest Service is malevolent at all. It, it is, number one, it's just too big. They, they control too much land. It's very difficult for them to get everything that is in their purview. And if we were to work closer with the cities and counties and states and the tribes, we could divvy up that responsibility and get a better work product done. That's not necessarily covered in the bill, but the other two things are allow the Forest Service on the lands they have and the programs they have to go forward quicker with categorical exclusions so they don't have to keep redoing all the environmental assessments every time somebody sneezes. And number two, and number three, prohibit the frivolous lawsuits. And I'm sorry, they are lawsuits that are frivolous. There are groups in which you have a collaborative process Citizens sitting down, coming with the Forest Service, coming up with a plan, and then some outside group simply sues for the fun of suing it and making it stop. We've got to get past that. So that's one of the reasons why I don't totally blame the Forest Service. They have actually too much to handle, but we are prohibiting them from doing what they can do with a lot of the, uh, a lot of the red tape that comes through environmental uh, assessments that have to be redone time after time, and then the ability of having anybody and their third cousin suing with no actual hope of winning, just slowing the process down. From an agricultural background, there is a word that is stewardship, uh, and crops don't grow well by themselves. Forests don't manage themselves. And in many cases, by preventing stewardship, we've been exacerbating the problem with wildfires or the potential for wildfires. Exactly. And in the in the bill, we actually did change some of the funding mechanisms so that the money can get there in a, in a unique 
approach so you don't have to rob reforestation programs to actually pay for wild, wildfire suppression. But money in and of itself is not going to be the solution. You also have to give them the tools to do the management, which is exactly what you're talking about. And that's that's been the way since the Garden of Eden. You have to have the tools there to actually do the work. Is there a piece of legislation in the Senate that matches the work of 2647? I think, once again, our hope is we've tried to be working with them in advance so they knew what was coming over and they can pick it up. I want to move to another area, and I think it falls as well under your jurisdiction. This comes from the Associated Press. A research company, SNL Energy, suggested that for the first time in April, 31% of electric power came from natural gas and 30% from coal. That is a sea change in our country. It is, and I'm not necessarily sure that's a positive change, but it is a change. One of the things that they suggested was that the price of natural gas has come down, but the price of coal has gone up because of the regulations surrounding the use of that resource. It has, and some rules that have been that have been implemented or, or will be implemented today have exacerbated that problem. And to be honest, if the rule for hydraulic fracking, which is now on hold because of a judicial hold on it, were to go through, I think that would change that dynamic, and you'd see the price of uh, natural gas as, and oil also going up. Um, plus, let's face it, if we're really going to be competitive as far as prices so that affordable energy is our goal, we have to change our export policy, too. That changes the dynamics of everything we're going to do, and it needs to be done. Talking about the mining industry, how has the administration's war on coal, has it affected the West? Uh, it's affected everybody. Uh, it, it's affected those areas that have had traditional uh, mining activity as part of their as part of their workforce, as part of the economy. But it also means that the price of, of energy goes up, and that affects everybody everywhere, and it hits the, the poor and the disadvantaged the hardest. There appears to be a decision by the administration that would take additional lands toward national monuments or, or national parks. Can you fill us in on that and your thoughts on the administration action? Well, the administration doesn't have the capacity or the authority to make a national park. Only Congress can do that. They shouldn't have the authority to make a national monument, but unfortunately they do from an act that was passed over a century ago when there were only 45 states in the nation and there was no BLM and there was no Park Service and there were no environmental laws. The world has changed and yet that act is still there. That act does not allow the federal government to create new lands that were not owned by the federal government in the first place, although I can give you some reasons how I think that's been fudged on as well. But what it does do is allow the federal government to break deals that have been made in the past and create a national monument in areas. So, for example, the one that was recently done using the Antiquities Act, and that's what I'm talking about, the Antiquities Act, which is a legislative function given to the president, should never have done, should never be there, should not remain there, was abused to create a monument in Nevada where they had already made a deal with the local constituents on land use plans and then the federal government unilaterally went back in there and broke the deal and changed things without giving any kind of input to the people who live there. That's wrong. It's just fundamentally wrong. People who like the Antiquities Act don't understand the Constitution, and they are philosophically hypocritical. And as I look at the press release and the other information surrounding the president's decision, a million acres in Nevada, Texas, and California involved in that decision? Yeah, and the, the sad part, and at least in one of the uh, articles, I think back here in one of the Washington papers, 
was they said, you know, this could be controversial, and his attitude was, I don't care, I want to do it. Well, he should care, and he should care about what people think, and at least the minimum, the minimum, is get public comment before you make any of these monuments, and that's not happening. That's an abuse of this act. Can we also talk about the Endangered Species Act and calls from many to, to make that process more transparent? Easily. I mean, it has to be there because we are... Too many Endangered Species Act decisions are made, first of all, with a sue-and-settlement process. You haven't gone through the courts, haven't been forced into it. And secondly, based on not having decent science. In fact, the Fish and Wildlife Service has told us that if we don't have science, we make our best guess estimates. Well, there are too many decisions that are made on their best guess estimates and not on actual science. And there is too often when you have conflicting science that is then denied by the by the Department of Interior or Fish and Wildlife Service, saying, well, we just don't accept that science. We will, we're going to continue on with our best guess estimates. But the other reason that we have to change the Endangered Species Act is the goal presently of the Species Act is to list something and control the land. What we need to have is the goal of actually rehabilitating the species. If we're not working to get things off the list, we're not doing what was intended at the very beginning when the Endangered Species Act was passed, and I'm sorry, today our goal is not to rehabilitate species. It's simply to list something so we can control the land. We also have seen um, an approval in 2009 that would have allowed uh, seismic surveying in the Atlantic Outer Continental Shelf. And as I understand, no permits have been issued. No, and that's one of the sad parts. We are, we are overly cautious in some areas, and I think there may be an, an, an ulterior motive of why we're overly cautious. But we should not be. Lots of difficult issues before you and before your committee. One left the Interior Department spending bill. A flap over the Confederate flag has derailed that for a period of time. Uh, any thoughts of when and how that may be resolved and back to the House floor? Uh, we have to work out a deal over the, the flag because it's not just for the Interior bill. This issue will be brought up on every other spending bill that we still have to go through. The Interior uh, Appropriations Bill has some good things in it. Um, ultimately, the Appropriations Bill should be a vehicle of actually directing where the money is. Policy decisions should be made separate from that, and we need to spend more time in actually making those policy decisions. For right now, that may be the only game we have in town, but uh, it's not the right way of playing it. Do you think there's a chance that this can move before the August break? My hope is that that can happen, and, but it will determine on if a deal over the, the flag issue can be reached very quickly at the beginning of next week. If not, then I think you're going to see all the other appropriations bills fall into September, which is still better than we have done in the past, but uh, not what we had hoped for. Is it tough to keep Western issues in front of a Congress to be able to find resolutions to issues that you have? It is for me simply because uh, very few people in the East understand Western issues. They certainly don't understand land issues. Um, in the 1960s, there was a park service director who believed if you got more parks into more districts, you'd get more money. Uh, actually, that's what happened. The parks are only 13% of the public land, but they're found in all 50 states. Delaware finally got their park. They finally found something to make a park. And it's now in 50 states, and they get the lion's share of the money. But the bulk of the land, like 44% of everything, is BLM land, and it's all in the West. So even though when we talk about public lands, federal lands, 
people in the East are thinking of a national park. Everything to them is Yellowstone. We in the West realize there's a whole lot of sagebrush on that public land, that federal land, and we think things, we see it differently, even though we're using the same verbiage. So there's a heck of a lot of education that has to go forward to let people realize that, um, that, that we don't view the world exactly the same way, that not all decisions have to be made in Washington. Sometimes local people know what they're doing, and the East is paying a whole lot of money, like 8 to $10 billion a year, to control the West. They shouldn't have to do that if they let us control our own destiny. I'd like to poll just a couple of current issues before we move to close. We are facing a deadline at the end of the month, perhaps imposed by Canada, but with the country of origin labeling. The House has, has, has moved 300 votes to repeal. The Senate hasn't moved yet. Is that an issue to Utah and, and to the western states? I, I think it's, it's an issue that illustrates the problem of Congress in the past coming up with marvelous ideas but without spending the time to work out the details of how you implement it. The problem with country of origin labeling is simply the implementation process. How, how do you determine the difference between a Canadian and an American cow, especially if you're dealing with, uh, if you're right on the border? Um, it is a problem. It is a problem that needs to be resolved. It has not yet been resolved. But I, I would hope the Senate would pick up the language and say, okay, look, it was a great idea, but until we come up with a better way of implementing it, you can't go forward with it. This is one where you need to go back to the drawing boards and start over again. If it was a good idea, then let's make sure that we do it well so it, that it impacts without maximum amount of damage, not only the agribusiness community, but it also the, the meatpacking community, the nut boxing community, the store community who has to try and implement this. Mr. Chairman, we certainly appreciate your time spending with us here on Open Mic. And as we conclude the program, sir, the audience is yours. Well, no, I, I appreciate um, the opportunity of speaking to you. I appreciate what you do. I, I hope people would take an opportunity of expressing views, especially those views in the agribusiness community, community in the West, as to how important uh, these type of issues are and especially how important rural issues are. Um, even in the West, you know, the bulk of the people are still a very urbanized area. And sometimes rural issues get the short shrift in that, and we need people to express those particular ideas. I am looking at a whole bunch of ideas in which I still want to go forward, not only on forest lands, on public lands, on federally owned public lands, on payment in lieu of taxes issues, on secure school issues, on whether we actually charge people for use of our, our parks and forest system. And if we do, how can we ensure that that money goes back to where it was charged to improve the quality of it? I have a whole bunch of stuff that's still coming before our committee, and I'm, I'm looking forward to dealing with that, as well as maybe some Native American issues, offshore drilling issues, energy production issues on federal land. Our thanks to this week's guest, Utah 1st District Representative Rob Bishop. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the Corn Farmers Coalition, growing safe, abundant, and affordable food in a sustainable way. To learn more, visit www.cornfarmerscoalition.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.